Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Cecilia Gentile for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 9th, 2017, and this is being recorded in the offices of Gay Men's Health Crisis. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you feeling today? A little bit tired, but good. I'm excited about doing this, and I think it's a great project. Tell me about your job here. Well, I am the director of policy uh, here at GMAC, so I do um, everything that has to do with uh, making sure that um, changes in policy or implementation in policies in a city level, in a state level, in a national level are um, the best policies for what we believe is uh, the right uh, of um, different communities like the HIV community, um, women, uh, uh, immigrants, trans people, uh, people that uses uh, drugs, sex workers. Those are all the good things that we believe in. We just make sure that um, every uh, thing that has to do with policy um, uh, is relevant to what we believe is right. So that's kind of like what I do. Yeah. Well, I'm going to uh, ask you some questions about your life up to this point, and if we can get to it, um, I'd love to hear a lot more about your job. All right. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up in the city of Galvez, in the state of Santa Fe, in the uh, nation of uh, Argentina, mm -hmm. Republic of Argentina. And when were you born? I was born on January 31st uh, of 1972, mm -hmm. which was a very hot summer, yeah. sweaty day. And I celebrated now here, usually with snow to my knees, <laughs> which is, a, it, it doesn't make sense for me, to me yet. After so many years here, living here, I, I still can put my birthday with the cold. <laughs> what was your family like? What kind of work did they do? And My were... family, uh, I had uh, a father that was a butcher. And he, had, did he own a shop or was he He employed? owned a shop. Yeah. He owned a shop. Uh, so uh, he sold meat. And he also had a small um, farm um, in, the, in that farm he would um, have cows that then would send to be slaughtered and sold the meat. Uh, that was my father and uh, my mother um, until I was about seven years old, was a cook in a men's um, school where like the people who go, uh, the, 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 these men, uh, these young men who go to school and from other cities and they would live uh, in a 
in quarters and uh, my mom was the cook for all of them and I think that was until I was seven or eight and then she was a cleaning lady in a school in a music school and she also uh, was a cleaning lady uh, and um, she um, she seems to excel at ironing so she would iron for some mm -hmm. rich folks that needed somebody to iron clothes. <laughs> what was your first memory? Uh, I'm forgetting my brother. I have yeah. a brother who is seven years older than me and uh, he still lives in Argentina. My first memory was at my grandmother's house where I would spend weekends and holidays and my first memory is a tangerine tree. Wow. It's me playing under a tangerine tree and going up the tangerine tree and eating tangerines and everything that was around that tangerine tree. That's my first memory. Did it smell? like nothing else in the world. It is my favorite smell. Tangerines and like um, orange also, kind of like citrus is my favorite smell. And I, it may have something to do with that. Uh, the tangerine tree was uh, an amazing uh, place to play and have fun as a child. What were you like as a child? I was terrible and I was lonely. I was uh, a child that really enjoyed playing um, by herself and uh, I think it had to do with the fact that I kind of realized at a very early age that other children didn't want to play with me because uh, my gender issues I guess. So I made a clear decision that I would play by myself. So I would always be playing by myself and getting into some kind of trouble all the time. And, um, but I was very, I always found ways to be happy. So, um, you know, all those times, you know, kind of picturing a child playing by, by themselves, maybe a little bit, like the picture sounds kind of sad, but I was a very happy child all the time, just playing by myself. And um, I don't know if many children do this, but I was known for eating dirt. I would eat dirt all the time. And um, that wasn't a good thing for my mom and my grandmother and anyway, everybody kind of like freaked out because I would be eating dirt. They got mad at you? They would get really mad at me and at the time it was the 70s. You know, it wasn't so many directions about what was uh, okay to do so I would get spanked a lot for eating dirt and other things. <laughs> How uh, do you think your parents were happy when you were growing up? Um, there were very specific interactions in between them that they may not have been the happiest um, 
<clears throat> situations because of those interactions. My father was uh, known for having many mistresses and specifically for having one uh, favorite. And uh, my mom uh, knew about it and I guess she chose not to do anything about it and to just live with that reality and that was her choice. So, you know, I respect, I always respected that choice. Uh, for me as a child, it was weird. Like at this point in my life, I kind of realized that people love somebody and sometimes they have sex with other people and that's very cool. But as a child, you kind of want to see your parents being totally um, devoted to each other. So that wasn't my case. So that was a little bit confusing to me. And uh, I remember telling my mom, you know, mom, dad, you know, has lovers and she would look at me and she would say yes and I'm like why are you with him and she said because I love him and I don't care that he's having sex with other people uh, so at the time it, it was hard for me to understand now I think like it's so cool that she kind of like didn't care about who he was having sex with with and she kind of focused on the love that she had for him but uh, for me as a child was difficult to understand. And um, I also learned that when my father died, that during the last 25 years, which it would be when my father died, I was 26. So a year after I was born, uh, they didn't have sex anymore. My parents weren't sexual. My parents weren't sexual. My mom told me, um, which I also asked, why didn't, why did you continue a relationship without sex? And she said that she didn't need it, that she loved him, and that she just wanted to be with him, but uh, sex wasn't part of the relationship, which is a lot, right, to deal with, but to, 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 to kind of like uh, um, digest for me, although, you know, at the time that we had this conversation with my mother, I was kind of an adult. But I always knew as a child that my father had uh, lovers and uh, one mistress, and I knew her, and we had a relationship, which is weird to have a relationship with your father's mistress when your father lives with your mother in your house. But we had a relationship with, I had a relationship with my father's mistress and she wasn't bad at all. She was just fucking my father. And um, she also entertained all my gender hmm. issues, which I don't know if she really wanted or understood sometimes I think that she just wanted me to not dislike her so that's why she entertained all of that and um, it is a funny detail of my relationship with her she uh, would deliver the paper and the magazines 
to most of the city because it was a very small city. So she would go every day and get the the papers from the big city and she would bring it to people's houses and the magazines. And when I was five years old, uh, she, we would get from her this children magazine. And one time she went to give me the children's magazine and I saw this magazine that was covered by a black plastic bag, sealed. And I asked her, what is that? And she said, that is for children, for, that's not for children, that is for um, adults. And I said, I want that magazine. I don't want the children's magazine. And she said, I can't give you that. And I said, well, it's many things that we could talk about right now, meaning her sleeping with my father. So I said, like, I hope you understand that I really want that magazine. You were so you manipulative. So manipulative, <laughs> like a horrible child. Uh, and, uh, Blackmailing her. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> manipulation. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> and um, she gave me a Playboy when I was five. And she knew that she was going to keep giving it to me until I decided to because I had the leverage, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. uh, you're fucking my dog. Well. Which is a horrible thing for a five years old to do, right? Yeah, yeah. that you realized yeah. it yeah. and acted yeah. on it and totally. Wow. Totally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned that other children didn't like you because of your gender. Yeah. So what was your gender like at that time? Well, uh, and How no, and another web, you know, part of my first memories, and when when I was talking like about like my grandma's house and the Tangerine Three, I think I was like around four years old. Another memory about the same time was being. Uh, kicked out of the girls' bathroom. Uh, one day I went to school and then mm -hmm. they told me, don't come to class. You have to go to the principal's office. And even if you are five, you know, you know that the principal office, some shit is going down and that you did something wrong. Uh, so I was very scared. And I have a clear memory of walking uh, towards this kind of like um, gallery, like a long gallery with columns. And uh, I was walking there thinking like, what happened? Why am I going to the uh, principal's office? And I remember like being little and reaching for the doorknob and opening it and the door was like, thick wooden door and like having to make an effort to just push it and open it and I saw the principal, my teacher, my mother and these two women on each side that after 
the fact that I learned that they were a psychologist and a psychiatrist. <coughs> and we had a meeting where they showed me pictures of what I uh, know now. It was uh, genitalia of um, female and male genitalia. How, how old were you? I was five. Oh my God. Uh, they showed me the big pictures of genitalia and they asked me which one was mine. And I kind of chose the one that was the penis because that was the one that kind of looked like my my genitalia. And um, they explained to me that penises were what boys have and that's why it was a boys bathroom to go to and that's the bathroom that I should go to and uh, that I shouldn't go to the girls bathroom anymore and um, I thought like they were crazy I thought like they were absolutely crazy they were absolutely crazy um, it is also other um, parts of this story. Like the area that I live as a child in Argentina was um, known as an area where it was UFO activities. So, like people would find, like you know, in the in the in the in the cornfields, they would find like the you know those marks and things like that. So, I remember like you know, jumping on my bike and going trying to find you know if it was any UFO activities or things like that. <clears throat> and um, one time, driving to my grandmother's house with my brother, in a very dark night. We went through a railroad, and my brother told me, um, "I have something to tell you." And I said, "What? What? What is it?" And he said, "Okay, but you you have to promise me that you're not gonna tell mom or dad about this because they don't like to talk about this." And I said, "What happened?" He said, did you see that railroad that we just passed? And I said, yes. And he said, that's where we found you five years ago. And I said, like, what do you mean you found me? You were there. And I'm like, but how? And he said, well, you were a baby. And I said, like, was I in, in a basket? And he said, no, no basket. And I said, like, was I in, like... In a blanket, wrapped in a blanket, and he said, "No, you were there naked." And I started crying. He said, "Don't cry, but you know, I just want you to know that you are not our family, that you were found." So I, during the rest of the trip to my grandma's house, I put two and two together, and I thought, "This is an area with a lot of UFO activities." I am a girl with a fucking dick and I was found there I know what happened here I was left by mistake by a UFO and I thought like somewhere it would be a planet where all girls could have penises like me and um, 
and for me it was kind of a I think I always found magical ways to deal with reality. And I told that to my grandmother who totally entertained that, the idea. And <clears throat> we waited um, for a couple of nights to see if uh, any UFO would come back to get me. And she was ready to let me go back there. Uh, and she waited with me until late at night and uh, helped me prepare a little backpack in case that they would come to rescue me. Uh, and I thought like that was so cool that she did that. That's very sweet. <laughs> Were you ever able to confirm if your brother was telling the truth or not? Um, well, my mom said that that, that is not and is, uh, is also, she also t tells stories about how difficult it was to um, be in labor in, in a hut. Yeah. Uh, hot, hot January summer and me uh, being in um, labor with me for like two days and uh, uh, her story is very consistent on like uh, she gave birth uh, to me so I think that he was just being a horrible older brother which that's what people do right that's yes. what all the brothers do I, I don't know because I, I'm, I don't have a younger uh, sibling but I will never know what the experience of being an older brother is uh, but my brother was just uh, awful like that which I think is so funny right now but at the time it was horrible what was the political context in Argentina like at the time a terrible. Yeah, I've heard a bit was, about it. It was a terrible moment. It was a one of the worst dictatorships. Um, my family, parts of my family were um, more involved in politics, um, and because of that, that was a conversation that was always on the table. But most of people didn't really know what was happening, didn't really know that people were being kidnapped and killed and uh, uh, pregnant, pregnant people yeah. were uh, being kidnapped and, and, and their child's children were like um, stolen from them and then uh, those uh, they were killed and those children were like sold and like and everything uh, that was not totally aligned with the dictators and the dictatorship that was going on uh, was simply eliminated. It was no way to um, kind of work with them. You were against the dictatorship, you were going to be killed, you were going to disappear and be killed. Most of people didn't even know or didn't want to know, uh, which isn't, I'm not saying this in, in a kind of judgmental way. Many people don't want to know or they don't want to talk about these kind of things because it's a way to deal with, with, with the problem. Uh, my family did talk about it because many members of my family were very political um, 
<coughs> were they on the left or connected to the government? Or uh, what was um, my um, my uh, most of my family members were uh, um, on the right in uh, M. But also, at the same time, it was this confrontation in between parties, right. my mom's family, uh, who were the poor ones. I don't know why they were conservatives. Mm-hmm. And my dad's family, that w- were uh, more, um, they weren't rich, but they had more resources. They were liberals. So it was an issue between families. And in my mom's family, uh, my aunt was married uh, to some uh, to a person that was um, uh, very involved, uh, politically involved, and they were always hiding. It was like periods of time that uh, we didn't see them, and like we didn't know if they were alive or not because they had to hide. Uh, very very traumatic times. Very, very traumatic times, and um, it took me a long time to understand that, uh, you know, <clears throat> a lot of my family members, they weren't just against my persona, they were just very scared of, like, what could happen, and what happened to, to people like me that didn't conform to gender or sexuality or, like, you know, had a big mouth, like I was known for having. Uh, so it was very problematic. It was it was very uh, horrible time. Uh, you know, uh, people are still being found nowadays. Uh, last year, one of these children that uh, were uh, conceived under the dictatorship, which like the mother is still missing and most likely is to be uh, dead because she was killed. Um, And this child was sold or given to a family and uh, through a movement that is called Madres de Plaza de Mayo. They keep you know, they're still looking for their grandchildren. And, and last year they found one, and wow. it was a big event in Argentina. So the, the political the poli- political climate in the country was uh, horrible. was horrible. It was, uh, it, it was very conflicting uh, until 1982, when, 1984, I'm sorry, which I was 12 years old when uh, we found a way to go back to democracy. Um, I always say to people, like, you know, sometimes I I, I feel like, uh, say, the fact that Argentina found democracy in 1984 didn't really affect me much in in a way that people kind of perceive it. Uh, I think like democracy was just a name that was dropped into a nation that was mentally living in a dictatorship, right? It's not like just 
you know, democracy comes and everybody changed their ways and their, their way of thinking and understand what democracy is. It is still people in Argentina today that live in a dictatorship mentality, right? So, uh, you know, sometimes they say, oh, but you know, most of your life you, you, you live in a democracy. Yeah, you know, uh, since 1984, I live in a democracy around people with dictatorship mentality. So that is as bad as living in a dictatorship. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, so it, it was hard. It was hard. As 12, as a, as a, as a very queer person, uh, you know, uh, we found this idea of democracy and I learned what, like, you know, gay people was and things like that because people start talking about it uh, uh, but the ideas uh, weren't comprehensive it was just more information around but the ideas were very very oppressive yeah uh, did you encounter any trans people or gender non-conforming no. people in, when you were growing up I had no idea what it was, yeah. and uh, I always thought like I was crazy, so I try not to think about that because I thought like that was a um, um, some kind of a mental illness, and like every time I try to talk about that, that was how it was addressed. I said, as, as, as "No, you are crazy. Mm -hmm. That's what it is." But. Uh, I knew that I was a girl. I always knew. I just thought like I shouldn't talk about that. At age 12 with all these, um, and, and I was attracted to boys uh, at, at the time. Uh, and uh, so around age 10, 12, I came across the idea of being gay. And I thought like, oh, this is closer, right? So like, if they say that I'm not a girl, maybe I am a boy and it's some boys that like boys. This is closer to, you know, to how I feel. And uh, I, um, I was uh, um, sexually active with boys and everything, but at age 12, I came out to my mom and said like, I was a gay boy and um, she had a hard time with it which doesn't make sense you had a meeting when your child was five because your child was going to the girls bathroom is it really surprising that at age 12 that child comes out as something? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was like, you know, and it was many things like, you know, my mother would say like, for example, you know, this was, this is one of the, the my mother phrases that I cannot get out of my head. Uh, she would say like, we're going to your aunt today. Uh, please don't ask for anything to eat. Uh, unless you are extremely thirsty, don't ask for anything to drink. Uh, unless you really, really need to use the bathroom, don't ask to go to the bathroom. And please, please 
When you talk, hold your hands together. And I said, like, why? And she said, because when you talk, you move them too much, like in a very flamboyant, feminine way, and I hate it. So, like, you know, with all these signs, like, I don't know why she had a hard time when I came out as gay. Again, um, I came to understand now that uh, the people that had a hard time with my... um, at the time, my sexuality or coming out as gay, uh, they really didn't have an issue with me. They were just scared because gay people were like, you know, just killed. It was, it was no rights or anything. So, I think like it wasn't just that they weren't, they were against me. They were just very scared about. It. So I came out as gay at age twelve, and then. When I moved to um, a big city called Rosario at age 17, I met the first trans person there. And it was this realization of like somebody else is like me in the world. What were they like? Ah, oh, gorgeous. She was gorgeous and she's still gorgeous. Um, Although my ideas of beauty had changed dramatically through the years, at the time I thought like she was the most beautiful woman ever. Um, Where did you meet her? I met her in a bar. She had long blonde hair, big breasts, big hips and ass, and uh, small nose and very kind of like Barbie-like kind of beauty, which now I kind of like, ugh. But at the time it was like, she was everything that I thought um, was beautiful. And uh, yeah, And I told her that I wanted to be like her. And uh, she looked at me and she said, okay, but you know how this life is. I said, no. And she said, well, if you want to be like me, you need to know that you're going to be a whore, you're going to get high, and you're going to die young. And I said, where do I sign? I, this is what I want. This is what I want. Um, At the same time, I met with this other person who had, uh, was so advanced into gender because she would leave, you know, as a very feminine man, I guess. It was so transness, but it wasn't totally focused on the feminine spectrum. It was what it would call somebody like gender gender bender or and gender fluid uh, person. And uh, she helped me in ways that 
not many people helped me uh, in my life and uh, also had me in her house and uh, um, taught me a lot and uh, showed compassion and uh, became what it was my first family of choice, I guess. How did she help you? Uh, well, um, <clears throat> we would do shows in bars. I wasn't really gifted with uh, being um, talent into dancing or lip singing or uh, singing or uh, I, I, I was kind of funny and for some reason people liked me and uh, it was this idea that I that I was I'm, I'm not gonna say pretty but I was like very well put together so we started making a lot of money working in clubs and in bars and, uh, and in not only gay clubs but in straight clubs like you know I work in you know at the door or I work uh, just doing some kind of dancing but as I said I wasn't really talented so they would basically pay me to be there right which was really cool I made a lot of money and I made my living like you know by doing that for many years and all of this is because of her and because you know uh, she had this um, uh, great taste uh, for um, uh, fashion and uh, and uh, a very kind of like avant-garde kind of fashion and um, that was very visually very um, had like a strong impact on people. It wasn't just that we were trans; that we we were like wearing this crazy stuff and like that she would make with her hands and uh, uh, um, and uh, when the time came when I didn't have a place to live she uh, she took me with her and I lived with her and um, uh, she helped me through many situations that weren't the, the happiest situations and um, she showed me a lot of love and uh, she was also a person that was dealing with a lot of uh, issues uh, I guess mental health issues and things like that but I guess that gave me a lot of understanding of what uh, what it is to live with somebody that uh, have um, mental health um, diagnosis and untreated mental health diagnosis and how hard that is but how uh, it showed me that it is possible to have lives around uh, people that may be dealing with mental health uh, diagnosis and to have them as part of our lives and have like a, like a normal life like it gave me a better understanding of of, of those uh, issues and uh, and it was hard at, at, at times 
-hmm. It was hard. But I guess it was so much love there and so much beauty in those relationships, in that relationship. That, and I wasn't the only one. It was a lot of trans people living with her. Not just trans people, gender variant people. Mm -hmm. That we were all living together. What was that her. community like? Was there a broader mm -hmm. network that you were a part of? Or a well, we were part of the or? trans community. You know, I always yeah. like was involved in many communities at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. that was the most artistic kind of part of the community. But at the same time, you know, I was uh, uh, part of the sex workers community because I started doing sex work. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and at the same time, I was going to school until like, I started transition more and more and more and uh, just school wasn't a welcoming environment for me anymore. But you know, I had my, uh, you know, my school friends and I had my artist friends and I had my sex worker friends and I interact in all, uh, you know. So very socially connected. Yes, <laughs> yes, I was. I was always very social. And um, again, for some reason, people liked me always, so I had a lot of friends. I, um, I didn't know friends, but I knew a lot of people, and I was welcome in places. I was welcome in, like, bars and clubs where, like, trans people weren't welcome. And, uh, you know, they would not just welcome me, but they would just uh, put me, give me work, you know, to work and the the door uh, until then of course I started asking myself like why do they have me working here at the door and they don't let my friends in and I thought like this is not okay so um, I I lost many jobs because of that because I said like you know I can't work here if you don't let my friends in what kind of shit is this so they say, okay, if you don't want to work here, don't. Uh, and I, but then I needed the money, so, uh, but as I was doing sex work, and I also was working in hair salons, and uh, yeah. Were those, everything. the other trans people you knew, did they do similar kinds of jobs, sex work, yes. clubs, and hair salons? Yes, yes, yeah. that was bad. That was what we did, yeah. right? That was what we did. Uh, that was our occupations. Yeah. Like, you know, you were either a hairstylist, you were an artist, or you were uh, a sex worker. Mm -hmm. I did three of those things. Uh, and um, I was very happy. Uh, again, I, I always found ways to, like, you know what I was telling you, like, as a child, that, you know, that I was isolated, but I found ways to be happy. Um, uh, I was very happy, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, working in hair was okay. Uh, working in clubs is hard because you find people that either adore you or hate you, so it was hard working in the night also. 
And working as a sex worker, it is a beautiful community, but the work is very taxing, though. You know, uh, as you know, somebody that you know, I'm I'm a victim of uh, 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 sexual abuse as a child. Like, sex work wasn't really the best job with that kind of history because it was it was a lot going on there. So, uh, you know. Uh, it was hard and like you know uh, I just don't want to vilify sex work but you know it, it was hard because uh, you know uh, dealing with tricks and with police and with other sex workers sometimes it's, it, it, uh, it's not easy it has its, its beauty though it has its beauty but uh, it, it, it wasn't the easiest job to so, have so what city was this again? The Rosario. Rosario. And how Rosario. big was Rosario? Well, it'll be, it's, it's, it's a big city. I think of something like Chicago, okay. something like that, if you needed mm -hmm. to do a comparison. What years were you living there? I moved there on 1989 when I finished high school. And how long did you live there? I lived there until 1999, I think, of 2000. Oh, so quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. When I came to the United States in 1999. So you were, uh, you were doing sex work, you were doing some hairstyling, some club stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was my life. And I was doing a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs, you know, I, I, I took what she told me, you know, and I kept that, you yeah. know, I kept, you know, she told me. You didn't that, die young. No? Yeah, I didn't die young, yeah. uh, and, uh, well, I still can die today, but, uh, um, I, I'm, I, I never thought I would make it to age 45. Yeah. I, you know, I always thought like 32. Thirty-two is a good age. Thirty-two is a good age. Jesus, yeah, to thirty-three, 32 is a good age. yeah, yeah. Uh, thirty-two, thirty-five, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and I also, in a very uh, ages kind of way, I never wanted. I didn't want it to be old. That since, like you know, I never saw a trans, an old trans woman. How old were the trans women you knew? The older at the time, like now I know older trans people and trans women, but at the time, like nobody was older than 40. And like, you know, uh, and we always look at them as like, oh, these old hoes, right? Uh, but, you know, uh, I never thought like we, again, you know, as she told me, you're going to be a whore, you're going to get high, and you're going to die young. And everything was like that, you know, I was a whore, I was getting high, and I didn't know people older than 40, trans women older than 40, so I thought, like, this is what it is. So in my mind, I was going to live until age 32 or 35 was the most. That was my idea. What kind of drugs did you do? Uh, all of them. Uh, in Argentina, I did uh, cocaine. Just cocaine. But I did a lot of it. A lot of it. 
mm-hmm. lots of cocaine, lots of um, tons and tons of c- cocaine, and uh, it, it became my natural state. I was uh, if I wasn't asleep, which for me has always been hard to fall asleep in cocaine. But I guess sometimes my body would shut down and just fall asleep. But if I wasn't sleeping, I was uh, high on coke. Yeah for many years for many many years what were um relationships like uh for you and other trans women with non-trans women in the same jobs and sex work and hairdressing um like were you you when you say the sex work community were were you in a community of both non-trans no, and trans women no, so it was really no, we centered were, around we trans were trans uh, trans yeah. trans sex workers we were very isolated mm-hmm. it was a lot uh, it was a couple of cisgender women mm-hmm. that were like extremely uh, open-minded and trans-friendly but at the time it wasn't like sex workers yeah. were united right in a, a seasoned trans mm-hmm. it was uh, you know uh, we had songs like this is a trans zone, zone yeah. and this is the the cis zone without the terminology, right? Right. right. Uh, at the time we used wording as like real woman zone and right. and travestis. We call it, you know we use the word transvestite and it's not derogatory in my country. It's like mm-hmm. trans people, transgender women call themselves transvestite, and uh, um, I'm very aware that here in the United States is not what it is, but um, for us, it's not an issue with that wording, so I don't, I feel the need to say it. (laughs) Would people um, medically transition? Yes, yes. Some people did medical transition, uh, um, and uh, we do hormones from the black market, and also then, you know, I learned that, I don't know how we, people got hormones, but you just go and just buy hormones. But then I found out that you could buy them in the pharmacy because you didn't need prescription. You just needed to have a friend pharmacist and they send it, they give it to you. And uh, uh, it was a specific plastic surgeons that, um, uh, do plastic surgeries to us. I got my first plastic surgery around 21, I guess, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one of a series of plastics. For many years, I, I, I thought like I found the solution to my life through plastic surgery, and I, I thought, I, I still think that plastic surgeries can be uh, very affirming sometimes, but for a long time it was just my only uh, way of thinking the transition could be possible. Um, and uh, uh, some uh, trans women would have SRS, and most of them would do uh, the reassignment in. Uh, in Chile, mm-hmm. it was this known doctor that did surgeries there, and uh, you know, woman that would save the money to do that. Would they continue working as sex workers yes. after surgery? Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
and if finally he was told like it was funny they wouldn't go to work with his woman they still work in the trans area and uh, I always thought like you know men are looking for trans sex workers because of the genitalia, right? right? right. And uh, That's what I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. but uh, uh, so one time I asked her, why do you go and work with this woman, right? Again, I wasn't using this vocabulary, you know, of course, I was using yeah. other vocabulary that may come across as transphobic nowadays, but mm -hmm. I don't want to repeat it, but you know, I wasn't, I said, well, why don't you go and work with this woman? And she said like, uh, she said, no. Why would I, you know, lose all these clients? They don't know what I have. Oh, When the time come and find out, they already gave me the money. So, like, and if they want me to fuck you, I have dildos. If, you, if they want me to fuck them, I have dildos. If they want to fuck me, they can fuck me. I have an asshole and I have a pussy. Uh, and most of the time, they don't even want that. So, I do more business working in the trans area, she said. And I'm like, that sounds right. So, and you were saying that uh, some people were more gender fluid? Yeah, 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 yeah. For many years, like, you know, I didn't fully transition, I guess, and I'm quoting this. Uh, I, you know, I work in a hair salon. I said, very feminine boy. Like, you know, I, I was using it my, my more masculine, I guess, my birth name was like associated with masculinity. Um, uh, but I was very feminine, like super feminine. I had long hair and, you know, I, I just uh, wax my face or twist my face. I never have hair, like, you know. Uh, I had like little tits, like, you know, hormone tits, so people could see it, you know, it wasn't just like that nobody noticed, they say, oh, this man is gonna come and do my hair, it was like, you know, which was kind of like an advantage for me, because I feel like women could relate better with me, I guess, I don't know, I don't know, uh, and then at night I'd be like full femme uh, bombshell, uh, working in a club or just walking the street trying to turn a trick. Uh, so, you know, uh, for many years it was kind of like gender fluid bender. Yeah. I didn't do the masculine part with conviction. I did it as more as a survivor, right? But, you know, it was like kind of like fluidity in there. And it was fun. And I missed that. A lot, like all this idea of femininity, I I don't think it's gonna be unless I die today. But uh, I don't think it's gonna be the end of my life uh, mm -hmm. uh, as close as the feminine spectrum as um as I was, and and somehow I feel um, but um. I think that it's not the end of my 
gender policy, I think is more to come. Excellent. Yeah. Were there uh, terms to distinguish between uh, trans women who were more gender bending or trans women who had uh, had SRS or trans women like yeah, were there, we all knew all everybody's word? business. Yeah, we always knew everybody's business, and it was like this idea of like, you know, oh, she's a real woman, right? Mm-hmm. She got surgery, and all the girls that you know had surgeries and they had like breast implants, they were closer to that idea yeah. of real, real, right? And then they were like people like me that were like, oh yeah, she's pretty, but you know, she's not full time. Uh, but I never gave a shit about it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was always very secure about myself. And I, you hung out with the pretty girls and the girls that were done, right? And they were my friends, and they always welcomed me and welcomed me. It wasn't like, oh, these are the gender vendors. It was like it was just a community of people, mm-hmm. and we all were together. Uh, the only problem was like business, right? Mm-hmm. It's like don't fuck with my money. Like you know, I work here. So, you know. So, real women and transvestites were the two terms that yes. people used a lot. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Um, uh, did you all uh, engage much with social service providers or no. political people or religious people, like outsiders that would try no. to talk with it you? No, it was all? no war outside right. the trans community. Uh, I, I, I was going to school and I was mm-hmm. kind of political, so. I kind of like took part in March and things like that. I don't think it was uh, much of a political abuse. It was just being part of a, a revolution and uh, changing, you know, uh, this idea of uh, in, a dictatorship mentality would interest me. Um, so I did have some interactions with that. Um, uh, so with liberal or students, yeah, or with you, student centers and like um, anti-colonization, uh, like you know, Argentina is was a, a Spaniard colony for many years, so we have all this like devotion for everything European and white, and like I was right. from the beginning very into like you know the rights of indigenous and uh, uh, the the development of uh, of an Argentinian way of living that didn't have to be European, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was transitioning and the idea of womanhood was the idea of a, of a white Nordic woman, European woman, right? That was the idea of what we saw as womanhood. And at the same time, these conflicting feelings of like saying like "fuck that," right? "Fuck that" uh, uh, idea of uh, of beauty. As I said, I said, look, what did he say? White woman. <clears throat> and at the same time, wanting to be because that was the pressure to be right to you know have long blonde hair and uh, and big tits and big ass and. Uh, Yeah, it was conflicting uh, for like hating and wanting to be at the same time. Uh, this white woman that 
somehow accomplish and like and hate you know of my body kind of like oh I did this like you know high cheekbones to look like you know Catherine the nerd that was that was the idea right and then at the same time was like fuck Catherine the nerd and all the European views that could conquer us you know so but I wanted to look like her and but I hated the idea so it's conflicting it's very conflicting uh, so you know uh, I did things to my body to look like something that goes with an idea that I do not share and that has its complications on its own absolutely if that makes sense it, it definitely does yeah are there um, more stories about uh, life in Argentina that you want to share before I ask you how you ended up moving Ah, as many stories, but I basically that's what I yeah. wanted to tell you. Just uh, you know, have like a family. Like my father's family was very Italian, and we had like long dinners, like an hour, actually lunch on Sunday where we all get together. Uh, my grandmother family um, live in a very small town close by, and. Uh, my grandmother was amazing, and she was the most uh, affirming person. And uh, what was her name? Uh, Maria, Maria Alejandrina Ustakia. What did you call her? Uh, Abuela. Mm -hmm. Abu, 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 my Abu. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, yeah. My my middle name is Maria because of her. Um, yeah, she was amazing. Uh, my mom was awesome too, but you know, she had her issues. She had, you know, uh, with me. She fought to to be okay with me. Uh, my father was always gonna be a question because he never acknowledged or addressed, you know, me and my gender. Um, Did did you ever meet any? Well, we will continue going. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, she, you I, know, I checked it uh, ten minutes ago. I think I was um at the time I was also advertising in. No, it wasn't the Miami Herald. I don't remember. I had like a quarter of page with a picture of me. Uh, Shimel Valerie. Valerie, that was my name. Sometimes I would change it, but I was mostly Shimel Valerie. And uh, <clears throat> I'm making a lot of money with that, you know, with that, with Eros. But she found, you know, she found me there on. I, um, I, it looks like I need to change the battery. Yeah, I, have, yes, a, I have another battery, so my apologies for the interruption. No problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, you had moved to Miami yeah. and were traveling around and doing a lot of different drugs. And yeah. you had uh, were doing some online. I'm not doing it here anymore. I'm not doing shows in clubs anymore. Okay, so I'm no just, shows, just sex work. Sex work. And getting online contacts. Yeah. And then you were uh, in a, in a relationship. In a relationship a, with this man right. who had a wife. That was, um, and you felt in love. Yeah, I fell in love with him, and she, she, she. I mean, she, she wasn't gonna take it, so she hid me in the street. Uh, She found my number. She started calling me. She started sending men uh, uh, as clients because she knew she saw my ad. Threatening me one time, she went to end up going to my house. Uh, she followed me to the supermarket and attacked me with uh, cans of beans and celery, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> uh, but then she did something that really scared me. She said, I'm going to call immigration on you. And she told me, I'm a, an American white woman. I can get you out of here in a minute. So I remember I sat in the steps of my apartment on 16 in Euclid in South Beach with my friend Bianca. We just walked by the same place last week when I went to visit. And we had these memories. And she looked at me and she said, like, you know, we, we became really good friends, my friend Bianca. Three years that I lived in Miami. And she said, I love you. And I, I hate to tell you this, but you need to go. You need to leave this place. This is not good for you. You know, you think, you know, she's not going to stop. This guy doesn't love you. go so she made some calls and got me a job at uh, with this uh, girl in in San Francisco uh, to work in her house I went to San Francisco and I started working in her house like doing cleaning and no sex work sex, sex work, work sex work with her so you know i go i work with her in her place and okay. i give her so she was a sex a percentage and of, you worked out of her home yes and i give uh, her a percentage yeah. of the money right for like kind of like renting the place right. to live and work there and uh but i also started going out and uh, smoking a lot of crystal meth, and I got really scared because crystal meth always scared me for some reason. So I went back to Miami and I talked to my friend Bianca and I said, like, I don't feel, uh, I don't know, something is not right in San Francisco. Um, and uh, and she said, okay, let me try with my friend in New York. And she uh, contacted her friend in New York and. Uh, to New York to work here and the first person that I met in New York um, her name is Nina and uh, I 
standing love when I saw her. When I saw her the first time, when I opened the door and I saw her, I fell in love with her. And, uh, and I couldn't think of like how that could happen to me. Uh, and uh, it was totally foreign feeling of loving somebody that wasn't a man and uh, it took me some time to understand but we started a relationship the same day we basically went out and came back very high on coke and uh, and we had sex and we fell asleep holding each other and we wake up, we, we woke up the, the, the morning after, and she said, let's, let's go for breakfast. And um, I remember she wanted to hold my hand in the street, and I thought like that was so weird. And I didn't want to hold her hand in the street until the day of today, she still uh, throws that in my face. She said, you fucking bitch, you didn't want to hold my hand in the street, I'm always gonna remember that that you were ashamed of me and I said you know it wasn't ashamed of you it's like it was so foreign feeling of like what the fuck am I a lesbian now uh, uh, and it wasn't like you know it was like 2003 2004 I guess it's like it wasn't like um, the, the, I'm not gonna say the trans community but the community that I was around the trans community that I was around it wasn't really a thing to be a lesbian like you know most of girls were like straight so it was like how am I gonna explain this? how am I gonna explain this to my friends I thought right and then I remember I called my mom and I said mom you know I fell in love and my mom said oh my god who is he is he cute and I said well it's actually a she and my mom you know said stop for a minute she said what do you mean I had a son that was gay became a woman and I was a fucking lesbian and I'm like yeah I think so and she said oh my god you're confusing me so much uh, but I love her I just, it was this crazy feeling of like not being able mm -hmm. not to love her it wasn't a question about it I just loved her. And every time I see her, the feeling is still there in different ways. Like we are not sexual anymore because she don't want to, unfortunately. But uh, the love is there and, 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 and holding her is still one of the best feelings that I could ever have. Like even now that we are not together, uh, so I loved her. Uh, at the same time, uh, she and I just I I need to say this that I'm I'm really not saying this with any kind of like trying to put any guilt on her 
maybe if she listens to this Monday, I don't want her to feel guilty about it. But she did introduce me with heroin. She didn't make me do I did heroin because it was another drug and I love drugs. But she's the one that told me like, oh, this is heroin. <laughs> and uh, I did heroin and I was not able to stop doing heroin for many years. And because of my addiction to heroin and to crack cocaine, um, I, uh, I wasn't the best for her. I also wasn't the best for myself. I wasn't the best for anybody. Uh, so we broke up. Um, when we broke up, I started seeing other people and still doing sex work. Uh, I had an apartment in fucking Mott Street, a very expensive place to live in. in, in in Nolita. Uh, Where did she live when you first I moved to New York? When she? Uh, you, I, I well, lived there. I went there. Yeah. I went there to my friend's house mm -hmm. uh, who had, who was renting the apartment across the hall from her. Where, what neighborhood? Was Nolita. This? Nolita, okay. And then that apartment, she gave it to me. I rented and uh, um, yeah, and, uh, well, I started dating people, and I was dating this guy, and I also was seeing this girl, this cis girl, uh, just sexually, and this guy found out and, uh, burned my apartment down. I was fucking with this girl. And when I came back home, he found out you were dating a girl? He or? found out that I was dating this other girl. And he became enraged? Yeah, and burned my apartment down. And uh, I came back to my apartment, and it was a yellow thing at the door. And the apartment was uninhabitable. And um, and I was doing drugs very, very hard. And um, I basically became homeless. And I was just... Going from city to city, doing sex work, and uh, having to find drugs in cities that are not yours is very problematic and um, then I started staying with friends but most of my friends didn't want to have me because I was uh, because I was shooting heroin I guess and they didn't want to deal with that so nobody wanted to have me and uh, I went to Brooklyn and I ended up living with this man that 
was taking the money that I was making, giving me some drugs to survive, but um, it was a very difficult situation. And I kept being arrested all the time. I'd be arrested for drugs most of the time. And then they raid his house because he would only like sell drugs and had me there doing sex work. But he would sell drugs to people like, like crack and he would charge people to smoke the crack inside the apartment and he would get me to have sex with them and make more money. During all that process, I was also smoking crack, so I was okay, I guess. <laughs> but it was like a very toxic interaction. And they raid the apartment, where the police. Was, where was the apartment? In Bedside. Yeah. Bedford and Green. And the police raid the apartment, and I be arrested again. <clears throat> One of the times that I was arrested, the judge said, you have to go to jail. So he sentenced me, I think, to two months yeah. And they sent me to Rikers Island. And they put me with a man. And I was detoxing from heroin. And it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And half of the men wanted to fuck me, and the other half wanted to kill me. And I wanted to die because detoxing from heroin is a very horrible, painful thing. I guess under like two weeks after I was there, I will never forget this. As um, they called me, and the guards took me to the gymnasium, to the gym. And it was nice. It was this huge gym with a very small table with a chair and a light. And it was an ICE agent. Which now sometimes I ask myself, what did they give this information to ICE? Isn't it like New York doesn't do that? Why did that happen to me? But what well, it happened. So the person from ICE told me that I was going to be deported. That I was going to be transferred to a deportation facility. So they sent me to the uh, immigration jail, I guess, here in Barrick. <laughs> and they put me with the men and they attacked me. And the woman didn't, this woman didn't want me to be with them, which is fucked up. Uh, so they had to have me in isolation, which is a very, very horrible thing. And not because it was a horrible thing, but it, because it was expensive for them, because one of those cells was supposed to have like 20 people and they only had me. It was too expensive for them. They let me out with an ankle bracelet. And um, with an ankle bracelet, I had to go and um, check with an, some kind of 
ICE parole officer or something. Uh -huh. So when I came out of there, I had to go back to that place that I was living. And I, I was, I was clean because my body detoxed from heroin and everything. But uh, I went there and I started getting high again. And the immigration officer, this guy, went over there, why, why don't you get clean? I said, what do you mean get clean? He said, well, I'm going to send you to a hospital to, to do detox. And um, I just did it. I went to a hospital. I didn't know what that was about. I didn't know what detox was. I went to a hospital and I did seven days detox. And from there, they said, like, you're not ready to. Uh, so they sent me to a 28 days. In the 28 days, I kept like, oh, it seems that people are able to, after doing drugs for so long, are able not to do drugs. It seems like some people can do this. <laughs> Maybe I could do that too. So I started like uh, contemplating uh, the idea of recovery, I guess. What was your motivation? None. I don't know. It was no motivation. I, I don't know. It just happened. But I was going to be deported. I had an ankle bracelet. Yeah. All this time. And from there, I went to long-term treatment. 17 months. Mm -hmm. In this long-term treatment shit. And I did it with the men, too. And those are very disciplined, yes? That's a horrible thing. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. I think that that's the most it. An alternative oh, to incarceration. Okay, sorry. Uh, it is an alternative to incarceration. Which so, program was it? Uh, Samaritan Village. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very strict. Yes. But, you know, they did great things for me. They got me an immigration status, right? They helped me get it. Wow. So, you know, while I was there, I was given asylum in this country. And I came out of there, and I've been clean and sober. What year was that? I sure don't know. I think it was 2010, yeah. Where, when you were uh, doing heroin, where did you get needles? From people. From dealers? Uh-huh. Did you ever cross paths with social service workers at all? No. None at all? Not at all. Mm -hmm. But I remember that like, when I was living with this guy in bedside, he would go to get clean needles. Mm -hmm. I just never did. I never went. And we would share needles. And uh, he is, or was, I don't know if he's alive, uh, HIV positive. Uh, but um, 
somehow we will share needles, needles and uh, but somehow I, I didn't contract it. Uh, I didn't get HIV, but I got Hep C from mm -hmm. him. Yes. So I lived with Hep C for many, many years. I just finished my treatment and I'm cured, I think they call it. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And so. were you in a trans community in New York that, uh, during this time that you were doing drugs? There was anything like what the community you were in in Argentina? Mm. I was very isolated though. Yeah. I think it was it was hard for people to be around me mm -hmm. because I was very into drugs. So I really didn't care about anybody and uh, uh, the most important thing for me was to get high and uh, I really didn't care about being around people. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. Many people weren't able to um, be to find a way to be friends with me while I was doing drugs. And so yeah, I didn't have many any friends. But then you know, but when I finished treatment, I just while I was in treatment, I started going to the LGBT center. Mm -hmm and going to a trans group. And I thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world. A group of trans women in the same room, like 50 of them. Wow. And some of them were sex workers, but some of them were lawyers. And I thought, what do you mean? They can be lawyers? And some of them, they work at Target. Some of them would do sex work too, but they would say, oh, it's all like, I don't, it's not like, I can do other things by being a sex worker. And uh, while I was in treatment, they gave me, I won an internship at the center. I have my feelings about internships for trans people because in a way, don't we create like real jobs, jobs for trans people, yes. right? But at the same time, I have to say that that internship was the beginning of a career for yeah. me, right? So I do have encountered feelings about internships for trans people, but uh, so I did that internship, and this amazing uh, person told me, You should do a resume. And I said, What am I gonna put in a resume? that I was a whore and she said no you were an entertainer and I'm like what do you mean I was a whore and she said what what did you do as a whore well I you know I, I took care of men so you entertained them and I said yeah oh, so why don't you name entertainer entertainment you don't have to say that you were a whore so she found ways to put my experiences as a sex worker translated in an actual mm -hmm. resume and mix it with the internship that I was doing there and I got my first job as a patient navigator at Apicha. Wow. And six months after being a patient navigator, they offered me to um, be the trans health coordinator at Apicha. And uh, I worked there for four years. 
and I kind of got tired of uh, doing um, direct services and um, the opportunity to come here to the policy department came about and I took it and I've been here at GMAC for one year. Oh, wow. A couple of days ago, it's been one year that I work here doing uh, policy and public affairs. Yeah. yeah. So we're coming up on five o'clock. Yes. I have a lot more questions to ask you. Yeah. Do you, do you need to wrap up now? I really need to go. Yes. Okay. I really need to go, but I guess we can meet some other time. That would be great. All right. Thank you so much, Cecilia. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for coming here. Absolutely. Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and today I'm uh, doing part two of an interview with Cecilia Gentili for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York City Public Library's Community Oral History Project. It is July 14th, 2017, and this is being recorded at Cecilia's office at Gay Men's Health Crisis on 33rd Street. Hello. Hi. Um, I, so in our last interview, um, we, uh, you shared a lot about your experiences in Argentina and growing up there and uh, uh, doing sex work. And then towards the end, you talked about moving the time you spent in Florida and then a little bit of moving around. And then we, when we uh, got to the very end of the interview, you rushed through everything that had happened in New York yeah. since you got here. <laughs> Which was a lot. Yes. So I think today, really focusing on New York, going back and telling me again the story of how you moved here, and we can dwell on it a little bit longer. And then the sequence of things that led you to GMHC and the work you're doing now and what that work is and how you understand it. Does that sound okay, like a yeah. good set of It is a lot, so I'm going to try to summarize a, a little bit. Okay. And you tell me what you want me to expand on. Yes. So what year did I, you move to New York? Uh, I moved to New York, and this is funny, it may sound funny, but it's something that I have to make myself clear somehow, and I'm going to have to look it up. I was high 24-7, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. If you ask confusing. me, I don't know. I know that I, I think it was in 2004. Wow, that's when I moved here. I thought it was 2007. Oh, but the other that's day, a big I, yeah, the other day I found some pictures of me with my girlfriend, and the date was in 2004. And I'm like, oh. I was in New York in 2004. <laughs> it's been so, so much years longer. Were very yeah. blurry. Yeah. So they're very blurry, though. So I think it was 2004. I'm in Miami. I don't know if I told you that I was with this uh, um, man in a relationship. Yep, His wife finds out, uh, follows me to the supermarket, attacked me, and threatened me with... Um, sending immigration my way right, right. and I got very scared and my friend gave me um, a job in uh, uh, San Francisco and mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, what did it be like a whorehouse I guess and I went there and uh, I started working I didn't do well 
uh, I didn't do well, not because it wasn't enough work. It was because it was in a lot of crystal meth in San Francisco, yeah. and I loved it. So most of my time in San Francisco, I was high on meth, and yeah. I didn't do much money. So I told my friend that I didn't want to be in San Francisco anymore, and she got me into um, coming here to work in an in-house here that um, there were also trans girls uh, working there. Where was that house? It was on Mott Street. Okay, right. I yeah. remember this now. Yeah. And here I came yeah. to New York City. And when I opened the door of the apartment on Mott Street, the person greeting me was Nina. And you fell in love. And I, I fell in love with yes. her. I fell in love with her, and it was a whole process to understand that I was a lesbian and that I like trans girls, that I like girls, which I kind of knew from before. I just never thought about it, but since Nina didn't want it to just have sex, she wanted to have a relationship with me. It was kind of like saying like, okay, I'm in a relationship with this girl. Uh, questions that at the time, I, I didn't have now, I didn't ask myself a question if I was a lesbian, but at the time I was like, am I a lesbian? Am I allowed to put myself in this category? Which today would be like, absolutely, why am I asking this? But at the time it was, the conversation was different, right? I remember one year uh, when I was with her, we, we got kicked out of the Dyke March. Wow. What yeah. year? Do you know when that it was? It must have been 2005, 2006. Wow. They, uh, they let us know that we were not welcome there. Wow. Yeah. Were you, um, did you know any Dykes, any no. lesbians at no. all? No. Okay. I didn't know any lesbians and I didn't know any trans lesbians. Right. So I thought like, oh, maybe I'm not a lesbian then if lesbians don't want me there. So I was with her for about two to three years mm -hmm. and we were very happy and we were very miserable too. Um, and were you still doing a lot of drugs at this time? Yeah. When yes. I moved here, I also moved to heroin. Yes. That's so true. I started doing heroin. And um, at the beginning, you know, living in, in, in Nolita, making a lot of money. Um, the sex work industry at the time, uh, it was very profitable for me. Mm -hmm. And I was making a lot of money, and I was living in a wonderful apartment. And you, you were still getting clients online, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Everything was That's online. Yeah. And uh, we ended up uh, breaking up. Wow. We broke up because my addiction was taking over, and um. um This is a little bit hard for me to, uh, you know, but I have to own it, you know. I, I, I was hostile towards her, 
and um, it's not an excuse, but you know, I, it is my, I, I have never done certain things that I did to her if I wasn't high. I think like the fact that I was doing drugs play a big part uh, and I regret them. I, I regret them very much. And every time I see her, I hug her a lot and I... It can bring out the worst Yeah, us. and I tell her that that I am sorry, but I can't put excuses here. Yeah. I did things that I'm not proud of. Yeah. And that happened, right? And until I don't own them, I can't move on. So, you know, I, I had to, you know, own them and I did move on. So I am not, I'm not happy about it, but that happened. So did you, that process of owning what you had done, was that when you were in recovery? Later? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's that came, that, that came then. then. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was the, uh, you were, do I remember right that you were living in a recovery center for, yeah. uh, 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 what was it, over a year? Uh, 17 months. Right. And those, those environments can be very, very disciplined. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I have, I have encountered feelings about treatment. Yeah. Because it did work for me, you know, it's been seven years. Mm -hmm. So it did work and it helped me, you know, face uh, a lot of these things. And But I also don't agree <clears throat> with the way that uh, treatment is um, addressed. Tell us about uh, in, that. In, in treatment, you know, I feel and like treatment is somehow uh, what I understand as a very, uh, and I hate to throw the word patriarchy in the middle because, but it's very patriarchal. It's, it's, it's very like, you are sick and I'm going to fix you, yeah. right? Like Which is like the idea of like, this idea of yeah. like, you know, I am, you know, I am right, you are wrong, and until you don't change that, it's not space for um, um, conversation, it's not space for debate, right? And like, you know, in my case, you know, I was placed with men, and, and it was no space for me to say, let me tell you why I shouldn't be with men. It was like, you need treatment, and if you really want it, you're going to do it with the man. Yeah. Right? So it, that is not okay with me. Yeah. Somehow it ended up working with me, but I don't want to come across like, like I agree right. with those, the way that was done. But I also have to recognize that somehow work with me. How did they relate to your gender when you were living there? 
And this uh, is, was it Good Samaritan? Uh, Samaritan Village. Samaritan Village. And I have great friends. Like, yeah. you know, like my counselor is now my very good friend, right? Mm-hmm. And we can talk about these. And, you know, we actually, I actually met with them and we work in a whole policy for trans people. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like, you know, I made an impact there and I'm being part of the change. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, whatever they did that I disagree with, they are making their business to change. But that doesn't take away the fact that it was many things that I went through that they're not okay. Right. Yeah. So I got there. And uh, how treatment works is. Uh, those kind of treatments. I'm not saying that every treatment is the same, but you have an orientation part, right? And then from orientation, you go to main treatment, and in main treatment, you have kind of like steps, right? So it's like first, uh, <coughs> kind of like tiers, right? First tier, second tier, third tier, and then it's um, uh, the last part when you uh, go and work outside and you just come back, just sleep there, right? Um, so when I get there, uh, I was in orientation and I was put with a woman and very weirdly, nobody spoke me because I, I never, I never passed. I think it would be one in 1,000 times that I pass, I, I don't pass. I really don't care about passing. <laughs> it doesn't really affect me. Like yeah. I know many for many other people, it 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 affects them. It doesn't affect me. But and I'm very clear that most of the time I don't pass. Uh, one that's one of the cases where I passed, and like I was with a woman and nobody knew, and I have a fucking big mouth, and I told somebody. I think it's not like because I I do have a fucking big mouth. But I was worried that right. having a body that includes a penis, yeah. you know, it's hard to hide. That they would retaliate or And it's hard out. to hide, right? All yeah. the women showers There's together, not a lot you of know. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not, we all, they all sleep together in the same room. You know, it's not privacy. It's, it wasn't like, I didn't want this to be found out by somebody. And I thought like I should say it, right? And I did, and uh, the woman complained, and um, since it was no uh, guidance from city, state, or like federal, like on how to uh, work with trans people, uh, they told me that they had to move me with the man, which was from the beginning, a very difficult transition because all these men that saw me at, you know, the women's, now they see me there and it's the whole kind of revealing and, and, and you know, we're talking about like hundreds of people living under, you know, the same roof you know, and different reactions. And my feelings about being, going from the female dorm to the to the men's dorm, and, 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 and including Sounds showers. Hum- and humiliating. It's humiliating. Yeah. It's, it's humiliating. 
and uh, it is a lot of uh, domestic lifestyle, right? Uh, getting dressed, right? Uh, getting dressed, it was one thing in, in, in the woman's side, but in the men's side, you know, it was very uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable and terrifying. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very, um, stressing. But, you know when, I don't know if you know, when they talk about the idea of surrender, surrendering, right? right? I really grabbed into that idea and I surrender and in my mind was like I surrender if they tell me that to do this I will do it right and I bought into the whole like fixing me part so in my mind does that include surrendering your gender it should not include but I didn't know that I, you know, I understood surrendering as a total surrendering everything and let them create the new me somehow or fix the old me. And were they trying to create a man? No, no, no. They were not. They were just totally not sensitive to my transness. They were not. They, They were not. They were actually very affirming somehow. Mm. Like, it was funny because I was living with men, but they sent me to women's groups. Huh. Right? Um, I was living with men, but I didn't get any activities for Mother's Day because their understanding is like everybody that is a mother uh, is, is, is a cisgender woman. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I was in their group, so... Everybody was working for Mother's Day and I wasn't, all the men, right? But I was living with them. So, very weird. Yeah. Very, very weird. Um, very, very, very kind of bizarre, like. And um, also seems like, you know, as I, I also, you know, at that time, I, 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 you know, in this quest for sexual orientation categories in my life, I said, like, oh, at this point, I'm bisexual because I like men and I like women. And um, so it was... In recovery, for some reason, I got very horny, very horny. I don't know. They tried to explain to me, one person tried to explain to me, since like your body, since you're not focusing on the drugs, like one of the most natural things is focusing on, on your sexuality, I guess, or you get more active. It was very horny. And it was hard to, you know, live with, you know, men who some of them I thought were hot, and uh, uh, and the ones that I didn't, they were able to 
see my body and they were able to make advances that they were unwanted and it's it's, 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 it's it was it was a, a terrible experience that gave me wonderful results but I don't want to translate that because I got good results. I justify the process. The process was wrong. And uh, and it wasn't intentional from them. I don't wanna also, and I don't wanna put them as a, you know, the villains here. It's, they weren't intentional, it was just no guidance. It's just didn't, didn't know what to do with me. It's the they just did what they thought it was best. Yeah. You know, also like I think like these places are terrified of lawsuits and things like that, and I I think that for them I was some kind of liability. So, my situation was very. But they were also doing some charity with me because I didn't even have Medicaid. I wasn't documented, so nobody was paying for me. And like those places leap from, you know, your benefits, basically, right? And I didn't have any benefits. Nobody was paying for me. So they, I was going through all that with this extreme gratitude to them, which is it's, it's so weird to have like so different encounter feelings about something, right? And uh, it's... it's Sometimes I feel like I'm jumping from I love them to I hate them, and I think I did both. Right. I it, I mean, I would imagine it's hard to hold both. Yeah. And that there'd be a real impulse to fall yeah. into one side yeah. or the other. Yeah. To, like, when I think, like, it all together have, or to, like, yeah. denounce when or I to, think, like, just love the whole yeah. thing. I yeah. think, like, oh, I have fucking ears without shooting, like, anything in my fucking bands. I love them. Yeah. But then I remember, like, you know, men opening the shower, you know, the curtain in my shower and, and trying to touch me while I was taking a shower there. And I fucking hate them. Yeah. So it, it is, it is, it's, it's difficult. What are, so you mentioned. And I, but I'm very grateful. I'm very, I'm, I'm, sure. I, I really, I, I want to be a person that is a grateful person, right? I, I work in, in, in being grateful for everything that I have and for, yeah. you know, so I, I, it is, it is like my country. Yeah. I love my country, but I hate so many things that happen in it. And sometimes I wonder, how can I love a country that did me so wrong, right? But I still love it. And I love my dad, and he was an asshole, but I can't help it but love him with all his assholeness, right? So sometimes this is not different, right? Since this, this, is, this happens a lot. So I'm very used to dealing with this encounter, opposite feelings about people, places, and things. How recovery is that, right? <laughs> People, places, and things. Yeah. 
You mentioned that you've been working with Samaritan Village around developing a better trans policy. Yeah. Uh, so what what do you wish they had? How do you wish they had related to you? And what kind of policies are you have you been helping them try to implement now? Uh, well, I you know we we've been working on like you know that all their um, you know uh, allocating clients is to be regarding gender identity and has nothing to do with gender assigned at birth. And that, um, although they're a super strict place, you know, people should have an opportunity to say, like, because of where I find myself in the spectrum of gender, I should be here, right? And if that is not the male or the female, they should have an area right that is for people that are not binary oh, wow. and yeah and and, and have they and, set that up in bathroom policy they're working on it in wow. bathroom policies and like um creating equity you know because sometimes a trans person need that a specific extra push right i think like i was successful because Somehow, you know, I had a case manager that understood that uh, case management and, 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 and counseling was, wasn't going to be enough to be around drug counseling. It had to be an extra part about my, my issues around gender. So, and she understood that she wasn't ready to do that, and she sent me outside to get where did you go? To I went to the center. Point? Okay, yeah. I went to the center. I went to the center and I remember, you know, taking uh, my first um, counseling and going to this room and finding out that my counselor was going to be a trans woman. And Who in was my book, counselor? Christina, yeah. the wonderful Christina Herrera. Yes. And in my mind, trans women were only supposed to be whores. Remember, like what I've been, mm-hmm. so what I was told. So my mind was like, "What do you mean? Like you, you work here?" And she said, "Yeah." And I would just come every now and then to give counseling. She's like, "No, I work eight hours a day here." <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "So this is your job?" <laughs> and she's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Wow." You are a trans person who has a job that is not being a sex worker? And she's like, yeah. And that was like, and then she said like, and I want you to meet another group of people. And some of them are not sex workers. Some of them are, but some of them are not. And she took me to a group. And I remember the first group was the biggest group of trans women that I ever seen. That For some reason, I think they were all waiting for me. And it was like extremely, there was, it was a big room, but it was extremely crowded. There must have been like about 70 trans women in the same room. And I opened the door and I like, what? All these people here, all these women here talking about life? And some of them do sex work, but many, many, many of them don't. 
and you know meeting other people like this woman like you know who's there oh you know yeah i'm an architect and i'm like what wait a minute what you are a fucking architect you know it, I have to say they were mostly like white women, <laughs> the, the ones that had the architect and lawyers and things yeah, like yeah. that. But you know, uh, but but you know, I I've been never I never been afraid, and I always been like you know I'm never felt. That's my mom, but you know she always told me like you you know less than nobody, you know you, and and like I, when I saw all of this, I said I can be one of them. Yeah. You know, I, I can be. Imagine that really helped with your recovery. Yeah, I can be one of them. Hope. Yeah, yeah, I can be one of them. I you know, I don't I don't, I choose not to do sex work anymore, and I finally see another possibility. Yeah, right. Because before it was like, sex work is the only thing that I'm gonna do, and in my mind was the thing that I was supposed to do. So. Learning that it was um, another choice in life and making the decision to take it uh, has been fundamental in in my recovery and in my overall well-being, right? And, and so I made that decision. And, um, and soon enough, they asked me if I wanted to facilitate the group. And I made many mistakes. I gave very many, many awful, regretful groups, (laughs) horrible groups. I gave horrible groups. I gave groups that were so binary sometimes, like talking about an idea of femininity, and some girls were like, what are you talking about? I don't want to be that kind of woman. (laughs) But I learned. (laughs) We all learned together, I guess. And then they told me, oh, it is an internship here, if you want to do it, and it's a paid internship. Was, were you out of Samaritan Village? No, I was at Samaritan Village. You were still Village. living yeah. there, yeah. So, I did, uh, I started getting an internship, mm-hmm. but I was still undocumented. While I was in Samaritan Village, they connect me with a lawyer mm-hmm. from Catholic Charities. Yes. Who did my, my asylum. Right. So, I'm in Samaritan Village being in recovery, uh, connected to all this trans paraphernalia. And what year is this? Oh, shit. That must be like 2010, 11. And getting an asylum process. So part of the whole trans thing was me doing an internship. That was a paid internship, but I wasn't able to get paid because I didn't have a social security number. And it's very funny, the day that I got my my uh, work permit, that was about the same time when my internship was gonna finish. And I went to the center and I told them I got my my work permit and they said if you go and complete this paper right now we're gonna be able to pay you retroactively for the whole thing. for the whole oh, wow. year internship yeah. and that's how i got the money to get out of treatment right. and rent the room because it's enough to 
yeah put down the deposit yeah down like the everything works so yeah perfectly yeah and um when i was doing the internship this amazing person named adi uh asked me to do a resume and Adi said that you know you should work in a resume. And I was like, what am I gonna? What am I gonna? Adi, Adi, been Israel. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. The amazing uh, Adi Ben Israel. And Adi asked me, uh, do your resume. And I said, what am I gonna put in my resume? And Adi said, you know, things that you did in your past. And I said, I can't put it. Mm. That, I'm, that I that I did sex work. And Adi said, you can say that you were an entertainer. Yes. So uh, Adi helped me um, change some vocabulary for what I put years of work without saying what work was actually. And you know, and Adi uh, explained to me that sex work has a, a, like a big part of um, uh, um how do you customer uh, <laughs> um, customer um, relations relations satisfaction, satisfaction. Yeah. so uh, Adi helped me phrase all of that yeah. and create a resume mm -hmm. and with that resume I applied for a job at Apicha as a patient mm -hmm. navigator actually I applied for some kind of nutrition something I don't know why I applied for that mm -hmm. Um, but they offered me a better position as a patient navigator, and, and what were I your got a job. What were your skills like at this point? Could you like use a computer? Mm -hmm. Could you read and I write could, well? Could I you? Could, no, 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 no. Very, very limited. But you were very good at relating to people. And I'm I very imagine. good at lying. I'm very yeah. look like I'm making look like I, I mean, know. you're extremely uh, smart and like very <laughs> charming. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I was very good at making them feel like I knew it. Yeah. I remember my first task when I met my supervisor at Happy Chan. He said, okay. In the future, you're going to have about 40 patients. But for now on, you're going to have only 12 to help you adapt to this whole thing. These are the name of them. And this is a system that has all the, their information. Right. I want you to create an Excel sheet with all their names, addresses, phones, so you can have a clear way of communicating with them. I didn't know what an Excel sheet was. And I went and I went and took the courage and I told somebody I was asked to do an Excel sheet and I don't know what that is. A co-worker? Yes. At Aperture, yes. And that person looked at me and said, who the fuck hire you? And I'm like, that doesn't matter. What <laughs> matters is that I need help and you look like a generous enough person to offer me that help. And he said, like, uh, you got me. Let me show you. <laughs> Let me show you where next shit is. So uh, that person, he explained to me, and very quickly, I got it really quick, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I imagine uh, you picked things up yeah, very fast. And I did my Excel sheet. 
And then I went to somebody else and I asked, how do I attach this thing to an email? <laughs> and somebody came and explained to me how uh, to attach that Excel sheet to an email. And I wrote in the email, dear Timothy, this is the sheet that you asked me for. And I spell sheet S-H-I-T. Oh. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So he got an email saying, This is the shit that you asked me for. <laughs> Which someone so, might say if they're yeah. really angry. <laughs> right, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> but in Spanish, you know, shit sounds like right. shit. How you the write shit. The sound is right. So he called me and he's like, I think we need to have a conversation about the way of communication here. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I'm like, look at this email. And I said, like, yeah. It says, and, and he said to me, what does it say? And I'm like, read it. And he said, can you read it for me? And I'm like, this is the sheet that you asked me for. He looked at me and he said, no. What it says here is this is the shit. And I started crying. Yeah, I bet you were afraid you I were started going to get crying. fired. I started crying. Point. And I yeah. said, I'm so sorry. This is how it sounds in Spanish. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, girl, we are all Asians here. We all have these mistakes. Right. Don't worry. Don't worry. I know how it feels to be uh, somebody that has limited English and right. and." and and be you know around people that may have a more advancing so don't don't cry it's totally yeah. fine i just i just needed to know that you didn't do this on purpose right. and i do understand that you didn't so that's it move on <laughs> and um and i did that work for about six months and i was really good at it yeah, I was really good at it. What 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 did you bring to it that enabled you to be good at it? People loved me. Yeah. Clients loved me. So your charisma and your clients charm. loved me. Yeah, and like a couple of like gay dudes, I remember at the beginning when like you know, patient patient navigation, you have to go with clients to the doctor, and, so, and you know, one guy I remember he said like, I don't know how I feel about walking in the streets with you and i look at him and say well i don't know how i feel about walking in the street with you but check this out we both have to work together <laughs> because it's my job and and you need it and he said like okay let's do this so you know i found ways to deal with you know this very transphobic things in a way that wasn't an, an issue for them and I also was able to do my job wonderfully, right? I got everything on time and like... <sighs> and uh, six months after, the trans clinic... Um, coordinator... The trans clinic was very new. This was at Apicha? Apicha. It was very, very new. I had like... Very little clients. 
think at the beginning they had nine clients, right? And was this medical services? Yes, medical yeah. services. It was already open. Yeah. But they really didn't have many clients. So they offered me the position and I took it. And I, they actually didn't offer it. They put the, the job position there. And my friend who worked here, Dan, who we became very good friends at Apicha, he came and he said, why don't you apply? And, and I said, because, you know, they need, they asking for a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, he does grant writing, right? He said, like, I'm a good writer. Let's sit together and write something explaining why they should hire you without a bachelor's degree. And we sat there and we wrote this amazing, oh my God, I'm going to cry. Like a cover letter. Yeah, yeah, cover letter when I said, like, you know, uh, because I don't have a, a bachelor's degree doesn't mean that you shouldn't give me this job because I can do it. You know, I can I can do it. And this is why you should hire me. And they hire me. And I will forever be grateful to Dan because he's been one of the most empowering people in for a, like a white cisgender straight dude. It's like you you would never expect that. I would never expect that from her. And he was super empowering. And uh, I got the position, and when I left Apicha, they had 625 patients. So, so I grew really the shit out of that place. I grew the shit out of that place. So I, I that's incredible. That's really incredible. Yeah. I, um, in my job work in aid services, I would see a lot of trans women of color that would go in and out of like pure educator yes, kind of yes. positions, and then another layer of white trans women, mostly white, yeah. who had social work degrees, yes. sort of doing some administrative jobs. Yeah. And very few people like yourself that worked as pure educators from spent time on the streets yeah. and then moved into a position of administration and authority and yeah. and real influence. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, I mean, I don't think I have real influence, but thank you. That's very nice to say. Uh, but um, I don't want to come across as with an idea of success sure. for the community because success means different things for everybody like you know i when i meet this girl that is you know where i was seven years ago i don't even want her to go where i went i want her to go where she goes she wants to go right so you know i don't want to come across as like Oh, successful, like, you know, was able to get out of sex work and now as an advocate. In my book, in my personal idea of success is what I wanted. Right. So I am successful. Other people may find ideas of success that are different, but for me, it is what I wanted to go in how I define success was to be here. Like, 
to have a fucking office where I can close the door and do this fucking interview with you and nobody bothers me, you know, it may sound mundane and, and, and stupid, but that was part of my idea of success and getting this office was huge for me. Yeah. When I worked in the policy department at GMHC, um, I could not have imagined a, a trans person being in charge of the department. Oh, that thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So, so yeah, that was a uh, that was it. And um, so you know, I worked for four years at Apicha, and mm-hmm. uh, and I imagine you developed a lot of skills. A lot. Yeah. A lot. And a lot of um, very generous people. Yeah. Like one of them was Dr. Moriyama, who was the chief medical officer. But it also took against my courage, right? You know, I took the courage and, you know, one day I went to him and I said, you know, you ask me to do this, this, this and this. And first of all, I don't know how to do it. Second of all, I don't know how it's important. So you should teach me how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So he sat with me and taught me, you know, things about programming and like, you know, and I you go and I would go and say the same thing to the people that will write, you know, the 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 grants or like the people that, you know, that then they have to write a report and they say don't worry, you know, uh, we write the report for you. And I say like, no, don't Teach write the report how. for me. Teach yeah. me how to write it. Yeah. And like I I always had that drive. Yeah. And I learned a lot, uh, what I consider a lot, and uh, what for me is a lot. Um, But I also got very tired of uh, uh, client services, the the client services um, circuit that Sometimes you find yourself being successful, but many times you find yourself being unsuccessful, mm-hmm. and it's not because you're not good enough, and it's not because your staff is not good enough. That's something really cool that I was able to do to hire trans people, wow. hire trans people. Like when I, you know the the clinic start growing, 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 I said like we have to. You know, we need to hire people. And they were like, oh, we can assign you with some people that are already working here. And I'm like, no, they're not trans. We need to hire trans people. And I also hire only trans women of color. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, you know, so I had people working for me, with me, you know, and, and my team under what was, I guess, my leadership. Uh, and... Uh, how big was your team when uh, you left? How big was your team? Uh, three, three. Maya, Wong, uh, Daniela Simba, and Misty Vidal. Uh, Daniela went to school. She did go to school for... I shouldn't be talking about her, but whatever. Uh, but she went to school to be a graphic designer or something like that. Uh, but Misty and Maya, um, 
have high school diploma or GEDs and, and that was really important for me to create these positions and I fought to have these positions not to have bachelor's degree yeah. requirements and again that was very important for me yeah that was very important for me I mean, I imagine the design of the position that yeah. really uses their skills for that was very important for yeah. me and I was thinking like you know and, and like having somebody with a sex work background right because I need to reach out to sex workers and we're like oh but we need some we need a social worker no you need a sex worker yes you sex work you know social workers read about sex work sex workers know about it and know how to reach to these people so it was a really intensive fight and I was successful so at the same t- so as I said like you know as I was learning and learning and learning I just services just I just I was unhappy I started being unhappy I started being unhappy, I started being, uh, feeling that I was ready to look at these issues from, uh, better point of view that that wasn't just providing services and I thought I'd be doing some community organizing and mm-hmm. advocacy uh, was gonna be my best fit and uh, <clears throat> I applied for a job at the center to lead the gender identity project. Yes. Where I started as a peer intern. And I got the job. But at the same time, I was already in conversations with GMAC. And they started uh, recruiting me. And... uh, Going to the LGBT center would have been wonderful because, you know, from being a being intern to be leading the gender identity project, that's a triumph, triumphal return, right? It would be very inspiring to yeah. lots of people, I imagine. Uh, but when they offered me the job, uh, GMAC and Kelsey said, we want you here. We come work with us. Tell them no. We can work with us. And they told me, you can basically do whatever you want. Yeah. Tell us what you want to do. Yeah. We want you here. And I came here and I took a position as the assistant director of policy under the leadership of Anthony Hines and uh, working with Michael Jaskis. And um, I 
came here with a I came here to do trans work, but I also came here not to do trans work. <laughs> I told Kelsey, whatever my position is, cannot have trans on its title. In the title, yes. And uh, that's why I came as assistant director of policy. Yeah. That allows me to do trans work, but it's not just about being trans. And um, when I talk to friends, sometimes they, they misinterpret this as some kind of rejection of my transness. I never own my transness more than what I own it now. It's, it was just a step of reassurance that I'm good at what I do besides being trans. Right. That I, somebody, I am somebody that, that can do great work and happens to be trans. Yes. Right? So, I did that. And then, circumstances, uh, Anthony left, Michael left, and I was called to Kelsey's office once, and while I was walking, I knew that he was going to naming director. I knew it since I was walking there and uh, he did and that was very generous and that was very um, trusting right and um, I am grateful for that trust. Because I work my fucking ass off, so. I bet. You know, uh, and, uh, and I think in part is because I am trans, right? And I really have to show that trans people can do the same or better work than cis people do. So I make it my business to, to show that all the time. And uh, I think that works in my favor when it comes to, you know, my relationship with my employers. And uh, GMAC does not have the best esteem from the trans community. And I am changing that. And uh, I love doing that. And at the same time, I'm doing a lot of other work that is extremely relevant to me around uh, drug use, around HIV, around Hep C, around uh, housing, homelessness, and around youth. And um, I am doing all the things that I want to do for my community, but I'm doing a lot of other things that are just part of my development to what my next step will be in life. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what year did you start at GMHC? I started GMHC on June 6, 2016. One year, one month, and 11 days from now. 
uh, and what did what year did you become or when did you become the director of the six department? months after six months after okay yeah. um, and so it wasn't just married though it was that every the whole rest of the department resigned for different reasons not resigned moved moved to other places for different reasons yes yeah. yes but then it wasn't just married but it, uh, it wasn't just my marriage. Sure, it's, but they would not have offered you the job yeah. if you hadn't. Yeah. If they hadn't been confident that you yeah. could do it. Yeah. Um, and so, to tell us uh, for people who might not be familiar with GMHC, just sort of broadly what GMHC is. Like GMHC is an organization that um, has been working for thirty-five years, uh, working uh, to with the. Uh, people living with HIV and uh, all those affected and the goal is to end AIDS mm -hmm. and uh, uh, but also to empower uh, those living with HIV and also people around them right yeah um, as you know sometimes HIV does not just affect the person that lives with it but everybody around them somehow mm -hmm. so we have like um, an incredible amount of services that go from uh, offering lunch and dinner and uh, barbershop services and yoga class and job placement and case management uh, to crochet classes and uh, whatever you want to do in it like art and craft and like we just opened an article 31 and 32 so we have wonderful mental health services we have an um, an amazing um, workforce development that work that have programs that are crafted for people uh, living with HIV. Another one that is crafted for people uh, that are and receiving benefits and wants to move out of receiving benefits to uh, re um, join uh, workforce. Uh, uh, that are living with HIV, but they have another one that is for people that are not living with HIV. And we also have one that is specifically for trans people. Uh, so we have all of, we have like, in, sometimes uh, I, uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't think I know all these services that we have here mm -hmm. because there are so many. Um, and, uh, Part of the work that we do is around policy, right? And making sure that, you know, uh, federal, state, and city policies align with uh, our mission and with what we believe is um, the right thing to do. And uh, sometimes uh, doing all this work takes a lot of uh, talking to politicians and uh, to elected officials, and I love doing that, you know. You, know, you love doing the lobbying? I love it. Oh, wow. I've never heard anyone say that before. I love it. Huh. I love it. I love the spotlight, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I love attention. And, uh, yeah, I love it. And, uh, So how, yeah. how big is the staff? And, you know, when, when I walk there, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Claire Underwood. I'm not Cecilia Gentile yeah. anymore, right? I, I put all this character on. I guess yeah. I, I'm doing some acting <laughs> else, right? Um, so that's what I do. And um, <clears throat> I manage the Action Center, too, and also um, engaging people 
in civil actions is very important to me. Yeah. And also like making sure that those people um, do it with conviction. Yeah. And at the same time, they they are respected and while doing it. How how big is the staff at GMHC now? I wish I could tell you that. Yeah. It is, as you can see, it's a huge agency. I don't have a number of people yeah. working here, but there's so many. Yeah. And how big is the policy department? Right the now? policy department has um, my boss, who is the vice president of policy and public affairs, yeah. uh, Eric Sawyer, me who is the director of policy. Under me, I have a community organizer. And uh, under the community organizer, we have uh, three positions for uh, peer assistance. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we are about to have two smaller positions for people that are gonna be paid for um, for the work in city and with city council and with different coalitions that they do, and we also have a couple of interns that work for us. And what um, you mentioned some of the elements of your portfolio, but what are the major uh, focuses of your work? The focuses are, of course, like the ending the epidemic uh, initiative. Um, everything that has to do with HIV criminalization and, uh, um, uh, and, and also everything that has to do with prevention, right? And everything that has to do with treatment is, is uh, of course, our main priority in all of this. But looking at HIV in a more intersectional way is what... Um, brings a certain magic right, right. Uh, to the to the job like understanding that paying attention to sex work uh, issues is important to HIV regardless of anything right mm. understanding that working around trans issues it is important because it affects HIV regarding to, uh, to, to working around youth homelessness is very important in understanding how those interactions work and why it's important for us to work around those things. Although you can say this is not HIV, but phrasing it in a way that shows why so many issues should matter to us are uh, is, is magical to me and, and helped me do so much work that I didn't know that I was gonna be able to do. Also have um, bosses like you know like Eric and Kelsey who trust me. Mm -hmm. That counts and, for a know, lot. And I can go like, hey, I need to go and take a shit in the middle of the street, and they trust me that that's the right thing to do <laughs> because I say it right. Because I don't do that. It just it was just just an extreme thing to say, right? So you know how they, how feeling supported in in my judgment is fundamental to me. Yeah. And you mentioned that you've been working, uh, that you've been successful 
in uh, improving the reputation of GMHC amongst trans people in the city? Yeah, I didn't say improving the reputation. I say just improving, you know, the relationships yes. and like having like you know um, a, a a new refreshed view of mm-hmm. what GMAC do and 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 how it's also been done for trans people yeah. and how they can relate to the agency and renewing the commitment for the community uh, is important for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, I felt when I was working at Apicha, I also felt like, you know, I stopped being Cecilia and I became Cecilia from Apicha, right? And I feel like I take my job wherever I go and now I'm Cecilia from GMAC. And that's great for Cecilia, but it's great for GMAC too. Yes, I bet. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah. And it may sound fucking uh, presumptuous of me to say that, but that's how I really feel. Yeah. You know, Cecilia from GMAC is good for Cecilia, but it's also good for GMAC. Yeah. Uh, do you, where do you see the future for a trans services and trans movement? Um, I think that um, f- from the work that I do, I think it's time to change the narrative, right? I keep going to meetings where they say like, well, you know, I don't know if we can propose this because elected officials are gonna re- not relate that much because you guys are guys are a small population. So I think we have to stop changing the narrative. We are not a fucking small population anymore. We are a big community. And you know, we have to, you know, at the same time that we benefit from this, you know, status of like minority status, we are a big, you know, I, I think like our goals should be phrased into a population that is big enough and not just as a minority. Yes. I think it's time to talk about trans with a big T, right? Um, when, you know, when it comes to services, of course, I would have to keep like, you know, focusing, in, you know, housing, employment and things like that. But I feel like most of the work that is done, it is done to address a problem, right? And um, I think the work that is being done is to address a problem, right? And to um, address discrimination. And I think we are at a point where we have to kind of anticipate those things, right? Um, Let's put it as an employment, right? Uh, 
I think like creating uh, trainings and development uh, to get trans people jobs is great. But I think it's time to move one step further in pushing different powerful stakeholders to create these jobs, right? And to assign them to trans people. Both government and, and corporations. And corporations. Yeah. Right? And uh, when it comes to, like, you know, healthcare. Yeah, creating, like, you know, trans-specific clinics is great. But we have to move away from that to make it to, like, every fucking medical space has to be trans-sensitive. Yeah. Right? Because we were sick on the... We, we, I get sick on the weekends. Right? I can't wait till Monday to go see my, my trans-sensitive doctor. I have to go to the fucking hospital. Right? So I think it's time for us to move away from the problem and look look at the big picture and what is causing it <laughs> and how to create solutions that would anticipate the problem coming instead of trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. I, yeah. I, in my work, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between trans exclusion and trans poverty yeah. and poverty in general. Yeah. Right? Like trans people, many trans people are totally excluded from being able to get wage work. But then they're in communities where like half the people are not getting I'm not getting work. it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like what's the like on one hand it's anti trans discrimination, but, but then on the other hand is... it's like the racism yeah. and politics of poverty. Yeah. And like how to think through those things together, you know. Yeah. And also, like, it's, uh, you know, all these things, you know, we have to start looking at in an intersectional way. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, we keep saying these, like, you know, uh, trans people, trans people. We can be afraid to say white trans people and mm. black trans people yes. and brown trans people, right? Mm-hmm. Because I am a brown trans woman and my life sucks because I'm trans, but it sucks much more because I'm brown. But it sucks much less than what it sucks for a black trans woman, right? So, uh, I'm... We shouldn't be afraid of saying that. Like, that's why when it comes to, like, identification, I know that, you know, sometimes when people get annoyed, but, you know, I always, you know, I say now I'm a, I'm a non-black trans woman of color, right? Mm-hmm. 
because that owns to you know the privilege of being like light recognizing right? anti-black racism yeah, yeah. yeah you know so uh, it, it is important to you know make those distinctions mm -hmm. and own to our own privilege right the mm -hmm. thing is like you know i never thought like i had any privilege till i now i can oh i fucking have a lot of privilege you have a door you yeah. can shut yeah i have yeah. a door that i can shut look at this and i'm gonna open it look how it sounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you know yeah anything more you'd like to talk about no just um very happy we're doing this. Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time. Really appreciate to interview it. me and um, being very nice and uh, wonderful while doing it. I I I enjoyed it greatly. Thank you so much, Cecilia. Yay.